2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. The following interview by host Beth Spencer with poet and artist Kit Kalin was recorded for Climactic just after this summer's bushfire crisis, but before the pandemic crisis, and during, of course, the ongoing climate crisis. I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging discussion about creative practice, poetry, art, habits, doodling, the power of humor and disruption, the value of friendship, and the importance of community. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Climactic, stories from the climate community, an art breaker where we talk about creativity in a time of climate crisis. My name is Beth Spencer and my guest today is a poet and painter. He's published a dozen full-length collections in English as well as translated books of poetry in numerous languages. He has been shortlisted and won various prizes. He's an emeritus professor at the University of Macau where he taught for many years. He's a conjoint professor at the University of Newcastle, and he's a fellow of the Royal Society of New South Wales. And he's just incredibly prolific across such a range of practices and forms that I wanted to have him on to talk to us today. He's an editor, a mentor, a publisher, a blogger, a world traveller. Hello, Kit Callan. Welcome to Climactic. G'day, Beth. Now, out of all the thousands of poems that we could choose, I've chosen for you to start with reading the title poem from a book called Republic, which is from quite a few years ago, because there's a story behind this that this is how we actually met through that poem, because I had a, a small job for ABC Radio National many years ago, where I was asked to select a piece of writing for uh, the New Poets segment. And when they gave me this job, they handed me a folder full of bits and pieces. And I was flipping through it, and I started reading this poem. And I just thought, wow, I have to hear this read aloud. So can we hear some of this, please? Okay. Yeah, and just to clarify, the poem's called Republic, but the book it was in is called Republics, which has, like, lots of different versions. And it was published around the time of the referendum, which was a great disappointment. Anyway, the poem... The villages are wished away and the kingdom of six o'clock closing. Shall I invoke you as an ultimatum, threat or promise, secret republic declared long ago, oracular republic of shillings and pence, of bush week, of whims assembled to towns strung on tracks till the tar melts in summer, republic of the burning bush and the sand blows over us, Crusts all our dreams, shark-infested floater, sand-ringed, bright in a fly-blown, shielding-the-eyes sort of way. Republic of oldest curses, latest luck, of shopkeepers smug in wise sores, free with advice but tight with their credit, postmasters weighing and measuring doom, profitless waste of quids to be made survivors republic lost causes found comforts of great good fortune talked itself down to dust of greater regrets republic of ought to be smog grim defiance of the empty gesture the endless beach of the sun never setting the clock runneth over the wake waves break forever republic of terrible skies and taller than others of the world's bluest ocean of all colors cancelled dragging through court by the office of jealousy its new tax on everyone's everyday spark for good measure republic of the fair go empty republic thought up by piss pots and murdering bastards 
of loud writing, of scribbled bark smaller than hands, of the roaring deaf taunted to fists in the pub of the serious business, terra nullius and the broken jukebox, republic of the old truths hidden, of never never say you're sorry, deliver the same blows again, republic of uncontrollable nights, thighs danced till dawn, without fear or favour or memory either, of the world's weary pause come to rest here at last, of the happy-go-lucky sat up like Jackie, jungle republic of crocodiles waiting, sharks in the shallows, stripped assets and staff sent home, republic of gullet, of gulping it down, of half-pissed regrets for same Follies repeated, Republic of not knowing how it got home, or forgetting to go or wherever it came from, Republic of strangers trying to please, of refugees sprayed on arrival, of burning the boats, and they still wash ashore, Banana Republic, uranium glow, anorexic, bulimic, mumbling excuses, beery Republic with its balls on the barbie, of the borrowed aphorism, of we told you so, of having your own way, us and them in the convict republic, of the past, of the few, of doing to others what they've done to you, republic lit on the hill of redistribution, of the lost agenda, of stumbling in mood swings, monster republic, and six heads can't agree, the wedge's thin edge and the floodgates of peril, of two wongs and a horde of whites, of the class and of the gender, of the great forms fallen into disuse, of magazine royals, involuntary intrigue, of service disgruntled, of dreamy afflictions, of not yet, of not yet, till it's knighted itself for services rendered, republic of garments sewn up in abjection, shoes healed there too, of nothing is mended, republic of Tories who take the horizon, having their effortless way with all labour, big baby republic of lottery winners, sniffs its own flesh in the fire it's still building, Surly Republic, grudging the chore of choosing its stupor. You butte Republic of having your cake, eating it too. Boys own pack rape Republic of the weak applause, of the wild jeering, the frenzied bid, of diggers, of dim regrets, lunch in the trenches, head in the sand, hang dog mouth, chips on both shoulders, lording the penguins, in love with its cliches of distance, of dullness, shiny Republic of suits and ties trading the future forever for dinner today of the union gone blue in its shivery underwear disintegrated communists who won the big battle of flash ideas condemned to slow death sold overseas for want of cash for another cask of our own chardonnay There's plenty more, but, but we'll stop there. <laughs> That's great. I love this because it just draws on so many of the concerns and stylistic tricks that I enjoy so much in your poetry. And it's such a great commentary on the whole post-colonial Australian culture and ideas about what create us as a people and so on. I was just going to say, interesting echo there for, for me. The, the poem I've been writing this morning is about Holden. It's Weep for Holden. And I've got that trope there again about, you know, being so pissed you don't know how you got home, which was, in my childhood, a thing that one heard commonly said. And we didn't, have, didn't even have seatbelts in those days too. Mm, <laughs> so, mm, mm. Yeah, different times. So it really goes through this sweep of history before your childhood, in your childhood, right through. And it, it still reads so potent right now. And I, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what led you to write a book called Republics. Oh, well, it was in the lead-up to the referendum, which, you know, Howard arranged for his own purposes. And, and um, this is in 1999. Yeah, and there was a movement about the Republic, and, and I, I'd written that poem five or six years earlier, and I started gathering things on that theme. I, I, it was also at that time that I'd started really working on nation and nationalism from a scholarly point of view, and particularly focused on anthems. You know, na national anthems has been a major scholarly interest of mine over a long time. So the whole idea of, um, call it anthem quality, which I think that poem is about, really, you know, what what is conjured up by... Australian national ethos, patriotism, 
th those things? What what are they about? I've always been interested in that and dispossession, you know, as a theme as well. You know, the the lies that are at the centre of Australian self consciousness or Australian unconsciousness, maybe I should say. Mm. Yeah, it's that it's that idea of how we create ourselves as a people through stories and language and tales and ideas and little fragments of conversation. I think it, it just does that so well. You've moved around, you've travelled, you've lived in Macau for many, many years, you've travelled just about everywhere and been translated everywhere and... Not really, but gone. <laughs> but, well, an awful lot of places and you've even got an honorary doctorate in Sweden, is that right? Yes. Yes. The University of Malmö. Yeah, and so in some ways all the world is your world, but in other ways you've got a very special place at the Mile Lakes at Markwell and one of your books, Scavenger's Season... I feel like it's like a love song to that place and the history of it and the complexity of it and your relationship with it and also your relationship with your partner, Carol, who's also an artist. So what is home for you? Yeah, yeah. Home is there, definitely. We got that place in the late 80s and we built our house there in 93. And when you've spent a long time away from it, working elsewhere, you know, I've been in East Asia for... 20-something years over the last 30 years, but always coming back to Australia. So I think you, you retain a strong sense of home in that sense. You know, the meditation that you give yourself when it's hard to get to sleep because of whatever's happening at work or, or whatever, and you imagine yourself walking around the place. <laughs> you know what I mean? Walking around a five-acre bush block. And, yeah, I'm working on manuscripts now that are largely based on experience of weather and seasons and, and, and things there. Absolutely. But I was just going to say on the point about nation and the cosmopolitan and the local. Yeah, I mean, my interest is in really is in the local and the global. And I think nation and nationalism is a huge and terrible distraction from that. But, you know, in particular, when it comes to, well, put it this way, since empires, so-called, faded out towards the end of the 19th century into the early 20th century, the deadliest abstraction on the earth today is definitely nation. You can blame multinationals for all sorts of things, but the weapons are all owned by nations. It's the nations that are killing people. And, you know, all the nuclear weapons are owned by nations. So if that Armageddon comes our way... It will be because of national conflict. And these nations which are bolstered by these myths and language and ideas of ourselves, and as you say, the strain consciousness or unconsciousness. Yeah, it's not so benign. So when I look at, to, just to shift frames, when, when I look at Australian poetry, it kind of annoys me that so much of it, because of the way funding works, because of the way publishing works, because of where universities are, etc., etc., that so much of poetry should be conducted on a national basis seems to me, um, well, it's appalling. And that's why I'm so interested in translation, you know, in getting myself translated into other languages, but also in translating and publishing other poets, particularly in a bilingual format. Because I think poetry really is a cosmopolitan thing, but it should be something connected with where you are with with where everyone is and that i guess uh, the translation then makes you even more aware of the specificity of language and, absolutely yeah. and so on so it's it's a wonderful combination that kind of very global kind of consciousness and that very very local at the same time well the thing that for, for, for poets about translation and and you know this because i've well, we know this together yeah. because I organised your translation into Chinese. But I should um, just yes, I should just <laughs> declare my um, not only have I known Kit since I read that poem, which is mm. must be twenty five years now, but also he invited me to be part of the Flying Islands. It's a beautiful series of books that he does where he pairs an Australian poet with a Chinese translator, often one of your master's students, wasn't it? Uh, a range of people, and it's certainly not only Chinese, Sorry, and, it's, true. and it's often not one translator, it's often a team. And also, we did it with you long before Flying Islands books happened. You were in one of the, the groups we workshopped with at Bundanon, which was before that. Yeah, yeah. So, that, but, but I mean, the, the point I was trying to make is that the great thing about translators for poets is that they're your best possible reader. If they're serious, they're the closest reader you'll ever get. They take you uh, really seriously. And I've workshopped with many, many poets with translators, and one of the most amusing things is how poets can be suspicious 
of them and I've, I've had to take a number of Australian poets aside and say, <laughs> these, these guys are not critics. Whatever you want to mean... That's what they want to mean. They're yeah. on your side. So, <laughs> and let but, the poem go. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and people discover all sorts of things about their yeah. work that they hadn't known through the translation workshopping process. Because oh, it was, you know, when you're a native speaker writing for native speakers, a lot of what you're doing is is very unconscious, mm. and you you speak to a translator about it who's not a native speaker. And you need to um, make things explicit. And in that process, well, a lot of people end up revising their original poems as a result of the process, <laughs> which is, I don't think, a bad thing at all. No, I've found it an absolutely magical experience. You're very instinctive in who you pair people with too. And you paired me with Iris Fan and Ruby Chen. And they were both just so wonderful. And I just want to say, one of your roles that is so admirable and I love is just how many poets you have helped along the way and got going again or got them expanding their poetry or their first books. And for me, that bundled on, I'm glad you mentioned about that. I, I was living in the van at the time, the camper van, and you said, oh, you know, you don't need accommodation, so why don't you come and we'll bring you into this program. And that actually got me back into writing poetry because we were using poems that I'd written I don't know how many years before that, before I made a diversion into fiction. And just being around poets and Iris's response to a poem that I, you know, someone from a completely different generation, a completely different culture responded so strongly to something I'd written when I was the same age as her, just was so moving. And it was just such a, a wonderful experience. And I think the thing about Iris, of course, who's, who's uh, by the way, just had her first baby in New York. Oh, I did not know and, that. <laughs> and, uh, she finished her PhD well, I think a year or two ago now. But anyway, the great thing about Iris is that she's really a great poet and a great bilingual poet who's doing really interesting out-of-the-box things with self-translation. Ah, yes. And she did her PhD in WA. Mm, UWA, yeah. Yeah, and I've got some of her books on my shelf. So there's just so many conversations basically going on that you seem to be initiating and involved in and pairing people up and creating stuff and putting it out and then starting another lot. Where do you get the time for all this? How do you, do you find that creativity begets creativity? Yeah, look, I, I think a lot of it's habit and, and you know, you have bad habits and, and good habits or, and, or <laughs> habits that don't fall into those categories. But I mean, look... People ask me, how can you get up and write a poem every morning? And I have to say, having done this for, well, if you look at Project 366, I don't know if we were going to cover this or not. Yeah, but we will. They can talk, cover it now if you like. Project 366, tell us a little bit about that. Well, this is a project that started on the 1st of January 2016, and the idea was to get a bunch of poets and fellow travellers, so to, to create a poetry-centric community of practice online where people would post draft works every day. And there were some people signing up for the year, some people signing up for the month, and it was supposed to go for a year. And at the end of the year, a whole lot of people had missed days and not finished, and so I agreed to keep going with them so that people would get to their 366. And then one thing led to another, and it went for four years, and we finally called it off before the new leap year started at the end of of um, December last year. So that's, from, from my point of view, that was uh, 1,450 drafts, uh, you know, each, each day for those four years. So what I was going to say was, people ask me, how can you do it every morning? And I have to honestly say, it would be much harder not to do it. And, and in fact, when I get into a situation traveling or whatever, where it's hard for me to produce a poem, a draft in the morning, I find it very frustrating. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's habit. That's and interesting. So rather than having only doing poetry when you have a holiday or once a year or on a fellowship, you find that habit of doing it daily actually makes it easier to do it. Well, it also makes you better at it. Yeah. Practice. I mean, poets are people who write poems, aren't they? They're not people who just ponce about because they wrote a poem 20 years ago <laughs> and it got published somewhere nice. You know, if you're a poet, you, you keep produce practice. the stuff. That, it you? reminds me of this um, interesting study I heard about two groups of artists, mm. potters, and one group was told to spend the next 10 weeks 
making a fantastic pot for an exhibition. And the other group was told, just make as many pots as you can. Mm. And at the end of the 10 weeks, the, the ones that were told, just make as many pots as you can, actually produced... Better pots. Better pots, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, a lot of it's to do with personality and, you know, aptitude and whatever. And there are huge differences that way. If, if you think about Stephen Spender's essay he wrote in the 1950s called The Making of a Poem, where he talks about all these extremes of creative effort being defined as the Beethoven method and the Mozart method. What it's about is that everything that Mozart created was holistic based on a complete form a conception from the beginning and details filled out and when musicologists looked at Beethoven's notes later on they couldn't understand it because it was exactly the opposite that he was essentially working from fragments leitmotifs whatever and weaving them all together into a unity so two completely different ways of working and it's not the case that everybody works one way or the other you you could change through your life from one to the other you could challenge yourself because your proclivity is for one but it's but it's an interesting way to go the other way you know what whatever i just think it's it's interesting to conceive of these differences in the way people approach effort but from my point of view i think the enemy of artistic production and particularly the enemy of artistic community is preciousness and it's it's a bit like that cliche about the perfect being the enemy of the good but thinking that you're creating this precious object and it must be perfectly finished i mean where's that going to get you (laughs) (laughs) can i get you to read while we're on the subject of making things the poem to tend Uh, page 91 and in In the the pocket kit i think pocket kit two pocket kit two To tend the gods as given, as found, new habits of homage are required, in word untamed, in sight unframed, paths to follow are so chosen, by you, for you, willing, blind. Go to the makers, not to the mockers. Take the trouble to tell them apart. Dust of the world you're sleeping off lonely under feats of self but work outlasts if you stay with the tune survives you and the all that wearied mockers thieves and smug ignorers in the end they scale away so get the toxins out of your system protect yourself protect your spark light in the eyes may be derided spring in the step its menace is met but you brave maker face the dark without within for you the tale untold doffs cap the wheels take on their fated spin if you'll remember one injunction go to the makers never the mockers tend to the habits of homage you've found I love that poem. Go to the makers, not the mockers. I think that's a great slogan. And it's had so many versions. <laughs> and every time I look at a poem, I wish to revise it, which and you really do. <laughs> pisses translators off because they think they've translated something. Oh, uh, the authentic. <laughs> which is which is the authoritative poem? Yeah. So I mean, I often I often tell. In fact, I did it this morning with my um, doing this uh, book for a Greek publisher in Athens. And I wrote to my Greek translator and said, look, I'm sure I'll keep playing with these. But from your point of view, this is good enough. You know, yep. anything I play with will be close enough to what you translate to not embarrass you. <laughs> <laughs> I should just say some of the languages you've been translated into is Chinese, Portuguese, French, Italian, Spanish, Indonesian, Swedish, Norwegian and Filipino. Yeah, I just gave you my new um, book that's in two Filipino languages, in in Tagalog and Kampampanga. I just want to go back to when we're looking, talking about Markwell and the Ma Lakes region. Mm. So we've just been through an incredibly brutal summer. I think for a lot of people, we knew a lot was changing. We knew it was coming, but New Year's Eve kind of was just a real wake up and a shock. What was it like for you living in the bush with a house well, that you'd built, built and conceived of and loved for all mm. those years 
with fires mm. all around, practically the whole country burning. Yeah, well, it's very confronting. And we had, you know, fires six k's north of us at one point and fires eight k's south of us at another point, and we had the car packed, ready to go quite a lot of the time. And um, we got the firefighter pump and a lesson in how to use it. And uh, Yeah, I mean... It's it's very confronting and it's, um, you know, incredibly disappointing that we have a government that's basically in the pocket of the fossil fuel lobbies, a prime minister whose office is full of coal people one way or another coming or going and Murdoch people, which is just as bad. All these climate change denialists, hard, soft, in between, whatever version of it you like. They're really holding us back from having a a better society. I I mean, you've kind of got me going now. But, Mm. I mean, I've been writing a a lot about this, which I discovered when this Greek publisher, they already had a manuscript and they'd been noticing all this stuff about the fires and said, well, what have you got on the fire? So I started going through my drafts to put them all in in one folder and discovered that I had a book-length manuscript... (laughs) on the subject of the, the drought and the fires. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, look, I think one of the arguments to take to the denialists is that Australian coal kills people all over the world. If there was no climate change at all, if you didn't have to worry about that, Australia makes up 40% of the world's coal export market. So if you look at WHO figures on deaths from air pollution annually, it's very hard to determine because, you know, people are very sick and then they die and what was the cause of their death. But the low estimates are around four to five million people worldwide a year and the high estimates are around seven to eight million people dying from air pollution. Mm. If you look at what proportion of that is made up from Australian coal, um, a very, very conservative estimate would say that Australian coal is killing 100,000 people every year. Now, that's a figure that's roughly equivalent to the road toll in China or the toll from industrial accidents in China. So if there were no global warming, there'd be There's a serious reason to stop exporting coal to the world from yeah, Australia. Exporting death uh, and also dispossessing indigenous people from their lands and yes all sorts of shit all sorts of shit and what proportion (laughs) of the workforce is it if you ask your average australian they think it's a lot actually it's thirty-eight thousand people totally involved in the coal industry which is very mechanized 1.6 percent of the australian workforce according to the i think the 2017 figures Mm -hmm. but if you look at entertainment and the arts Mm. is two percent yeah yeah you know, ed- education is like 7 or 8%. Health is 12%. So, I mean, 1.6% of people who basically should be involved in solar panels and wind farms. While we're on facts and figures here, the other thing, this widely cited figure, Australia's part in global emissions is 1.3% mm. or something, which already makes us one of the top three per capita mm. emitters. Okay, but, but, but that's a rubbish figure because it doesn't take into account our coal exports, which would bring us up to at least 5%, maybe 6 or 7%, therefore making us easily the world's worst per capita. And it does not take into account this last summer, where on top of our normal emissions, we've added 70% of that through bushfire smoke. But of course, that doesn't count because we didn't mean it. Yeah. We weren't intending to do that. I mean, all of we this We didn't make weasley, any money from it. Yeah, we didn't make any money out of it, so it doesn't count. <laughs> So there really needs to be a serious shift in government. And the fact that the Labor Party entertains all this love of coal, along with the coalition, is, um, you know, it's very disappointing. And it needs to be, you know, people need to be out on the streets and writing to their local members and doing everything they can. And I I think writing poetry is and, and singing songs and painting pictures is part of all of that. Can I get you to read another poem? <laughs> yeah, sure. Speaking of talk Sorry about, to talking rant. about poem. Oh, a good old rant's a good thing to have. <laughs> um, there's, there's the rant inside the poem and, and the rant beyond it. Go on. The rants. You've got to have rants. <laughs> How about like? if we read one from Scavengers? Uh-huh. Scavengers Season in Creek Beds? Oh, okay. Hoof and snout and paw have speech in last year's grass, drought, yellow. 
Love that the path turns by its will, and I have trod that way in coming. Some skies suggest a rainbow. Birds bank and spin till out of day. The clouds wheel low. Love that the creek turns by its will, where sky came tumbling all to level. That the stones have smoothed to fit the foot, and I have trod that way. I love that sense of that this is a place that you have trod and known and that it fits you and you fit it and just that beautiful relationship backwards and forwards it's all through that book and yeah, it took an amazingly long time to write I have to say did it for you <laughs> yeah I mean the ridiculous amount of of um revising actually yeah it's like 25 years basically well it really was a work of love in so many ways and you've done work with, you've done exhibitions and so on with your partner, Carol. Yeah, we've had, um, well, mm, that's a kind of complicated history. I, I think I've had about 10 solo exhibitions in different parts of the world, and I'm Carol as well. And then together, we've had a, n- a number of exhibitions that were both our painting, but also we've had shows where it was my poetry with her artwork. So that's what... Uh, Time with the Sky was, for instance. That was work that came out of a Bundanon residency in 08 or 09, somewhere around there. And we're talking about Carol Archer, Carol who's Ar- an Australian... Dr. Carol Archer, Dr. The Carol Australian Archer, who's an Australian artist, who yeah. also lived many years in Macau with you. Is that right? Well, she lived more in Hong Kong, actually. Hong Kong. She was teaching at Lingnam University for many years, and I was at the University of Macau. How do you find sort of juggling each other's creativity? Does it mean that you both become more creative? Oh. Um, yeah, I mean... It, it I mean, we think, of, we think of artists and writers as these terribly temperamental people who can get moody and all that kind of thing, and you get oh. two together. Do they clash or do they just feed oh. and nourish each other? <laughs> <laughs> or both? <laughs> uh, who knows? I, I, don't, I don't know if I should speak publicly about such things. Um, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure we're always inspiring each other. Did you um, get into painting but, I mean, through to, Carol? To us, it's in, very important to have um, very separate workspaces, for instance, mm. because we, we have very different aesthetics that, that you know, cross over at certain points. Mm. But you've got to have your own space and, and you know, frame to work in, sure. What, what was the other question? Um, did you start painting after Carol? Oh, she's... In fact, did yeah, she much, get much, you into I've painting? I've been painting for about 15 years or something. Carol's been, been a mm. painter, visual artist. I mean, not just her whole, whole adult life. She was, as a, as a child, I, I think, you know, I mean, I was into poetry from an early age and I think she was into art from an early age. You know, I got into art actually from doodling in meetings and conferences I remember and your doodle blog that you had about 20 years ago. You had a whole yeah, well, blog about you can doodling. Still find that. Yeah. yeah, I remember you saying saying to me um, at a conference you you were watching yeah. me doodle and then I asked a question yes. and you said and you said to me uh, how how could you have done, and and you know how were you able to ask a question that was relevance when and I have to just say here to people that I'm not talking about him just doing little doodles in the corner or something like that he was creating this beautiful work while someone was giving a talk and I'm sort of nodding off because it was a hot afternoon and he was also bringing out his watercolours and he was colouring it in and he was doing all these intricate things and then they asked for questions and suddenly he put up his hand and asked this incredibly beautifully formulated question (laughs) And you, you inspired me to look at the research on this, which actually shows ah. that people who doodle in meetings are much better focused than people who are trying to concentrate. Because if you try to concentrate, yeah. you're just going to think about the shopping or whatever. And in fact, because then you're not controlling the other place that your mind goes to. Which uh, is another... great. And it's part of, again, of what seems to be coming out of this is that the more creativity inspires more creativity and that conversation between all the different aspects of it. So what's for you is the difference between a, when you go to make a painting and when you go to make a poem? Is there a different process? Well, can I pause that question for a moment and, and just say I, I think that the thing that creativity 
can often depend on, and I think doodling in the conference is a good example, is this thing Michel Deserteau calls the peruque, which is time stolen from uh, official consciousness. Mm. Okay, that might sound a bit weird, but what it means is, so the um, secretary writing love letters in the moments she finds to do it at her desk, or the carpenter who, with the scraps of wood off the floor, makes a toy for his child at home. These are Desato's examples. But I think anyone who's got a creative practice who holds down a, you know, a day job is involved in some kind of peruk, stealing time for one thing for another. Now, if your job is the creative practice, that becomes a bit tricky. I mean, if you're retired from the day job and you're just doing creative stuff, then you've only got You've only got yourself from whom to steal time. Well, I think you can make that work by having more than one practice, basically. Um, and that's kind of what I'm doing. It's interesting, just going back to, you know, there was a stage with the doodling before you saw the effort where it was just in pen on paper and somebody leaned over to me at a conference or in a meeting and said to me, why don't you try colour? That could be interesting. <laughs> and I, And then I did. And you feel a bit self-conscious taking coloured pencils to a conference at first, but then what the hell? Why not? So I think being able to shift from one thing to another, from one mode to another, it's a little bit like, you know, left brain, right brain stuff. I think we the should way be handing out paper and pens have, at the next conference. Yeah, well, the way they say, you know, pianists have this, you know, more balanced brain because mm. of the left hand and the right hand both have to produce notes that go together. You know, it's different from what a guitarist mm. is, is doing, for instance. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Speaking of guitar, when I was pulling books off my shelves that you either wrote or edited or co-edited or initiated in some form. Books that are my fault. I know what you're saying, Beth. <laughs> Books that you had a, had a finger in as well. And there was a, quite a pile I was collecting. I also found a CD of your playing guitar called Two mm. Guitars the Same that you sent me many years ago. So mm. just let listeners that know right now, that, that <laughs> don't worry about the cover, they don't ever see that, but <laughs> we will be threading some of music from Two Guitars the Same and okay. by Kit Kellen through this so we really have covering a lot of cross arts practices here has being translated changed the way you write mm, and how you see yourself as a poet mm. absolutely and I mean a lot of what I write I write self-consciously for translation and thinking about actually particular languages into which things will go and thinking of particular translators with whom I work and thinking about explanations I'm going to have to make. I notice on the table here in front of me you've got a copy of Notes for the Translators and this is a, a book wonderful that book. I edited about 10 years ago which was after having done a lot of workshops with, with people we thought it would be a good idea to ask a whole lot of Australian poets and New Zealand poets to throw us one poem each with their notes on what they think a translator ought to pay attention to in looking at that poem. The idea being that with that, a translator could create an anthology of Australian poet or Australasian poetry in any language. And it's been used by a lot of people since then. It's also um, just a, a fabulous book to read because you read a poem and then you read each person's got like a little essay in whichever mm. way they wanted to put it beside that. So it's a mm. terrific way to construct a book. And also to make people think about how a non-native of English could understand their work well enough to create a version of it that would communicate with the native speakers of their language. I think that's a great challenge for, for poetry. And I think it's the sort of thing that poetry's for you, you know there's all that stuff uh, famous misquote of Robert Frost about poetry being untranslatable well yes it's true that poetry's lost in translation but it's also found, it's also found in the process yeah. of translation I think it's a really important training for poets to, to try to translate or co-translate I mean I, I only co I'm not good enough at any language other than English to translate by myself I only co-translate with other people 
but I think I've become fairly adept at facilitating the process into English from various languages and at getting people to ask the right questions to go into other languages from English. I remember that book because you invited me to put a poem in and I couldn't work out what to do, but I knew that Iris had chosen one of mine called Poem for Jesse to translate at Vandenon. And so I put that in and I was so shocked that she chose that because it's got things like Matt's Blue Room in Fitzroy and it's um, mm. Evie Parts 1 and 2, which you know mm-hmm. highly specific highly cultural. specific to a generation and a place and a yep. culture and yet she chose that so it's something in yeah, that she's a bit of a groover Iris. <laughs> you're listening um but it, it's that too but but it's also I, I think some translators are really attracted to the culturally specific yeah, and temporally yeah. specific material because they like that challenge of recreating a setting well, Ruby chose some as well, one that mentioned the Brady Bunch. And when someone read that in Mandarin at my lawn, I said, how did you, like, you know, get that? And she said, oh, I just like the sound of the words. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, that's another way they go to uh, Look, I remember in early noughties, I went to the first, uh, in, in Chengdu, in Sichuan, the first Chinese conference on the beat poets, on beat poetics, mm. which was really a blast. And the first approaches to beat poetic in China were to do with it all being disgusting and reprehensible and deviant behaviours. And then there were other approaches later by the time this conference happened. But, yeah, I guess translators choose what they want to engage with and publishers Mm. too. There's a lot of filters between any two languages of poetry, I suppose, and that's an interesting study in in itself. But when you're from one culture and you've got the opportunity to introduce people to to guide another readership into poetry, and what I've always tried to do with Australian poetry is to make it as broad a church as possible, you know, to give people as many different I mean, I've always liked to create anthologies where I put together between covers people who would rather not be in the same room <laughs> if they could avoid it. And in the series as well. So how many books in the Flying Islands pocket books now? Uh, there's 70 books and there's seven or eight on the drawing board for this year and then there's a few in the offing for next year as well. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're doing, averaging five to ten a year, I guess. And probably a third of those are bilingual. You know, we've had Chinese, Portuguese, Spanish, uh, Lithuanian, Swedish, Norwegian, you know, a few other languages, uh, Tagalog, Maori. Um, mm. Yep. So the more languages, the better as far yeah. as I'm concerned. And it makes a beautiful book too because it's like little artworks when you see it, particularly with the Mandarin, and you've got one page in English and the facing page is in Mandarin. It's it's beautiful, and it gives that space in between pausing with the pages. I just think it's it's a fabulous project that's worked so well. Hmm, well, thank you. Um, I hope it continues. I hope it continues to be funded, and I hope um, if anyone's interested in helping design, we need more designers. Get in well, touch. Well, <laughs> and they're, they're beautiful looking, too, all of the covers. You've managed to come up with a, a style that allows each poet to select with your input a really striking image and then it's got this beautiful clean white type around it and the photo on the back. So you get this very strong series effect at the same time as each one is just an individual little work of art. Yeah, so, it's nice, nice lining them up with all the author picks on the back. Because we don't, and I, and I should stress to the people who might be interested in the designing that nobody gets paid. Um, this is community This is all publishing. love, yes. Um, <laughs> so just pointing that out. But yeah, it's nice when you line up the backs of the books and you can see all the author picks. We don't have any enconia on the uh, you know, praise words on the, on the back covers. We just have a picture of the author and the logos. Yeah, it's strong and simple and it creates that very strong series and that individual, which I guess is what you're doing in all sorts of ways. So your latest, you've moved on from 366 now to a blog called The Daily Kit, yep. um, which is at the, the daily kit forward slash blogspot.com if someone wants to have a look at it. Yep. And in this one, it's that similar sort of thing about process. And so I notice that you include things like mind maps sometimes, like the little 
Ah, that's what you call them. That's what I call them. Well, it's just like, instead of just like linear ideas about a draft of a poem, you've got, and I do the same thing, is your little little ideas all over the page in different spots and how they connect up. And um, <laughs> draft you say, versions. You say it as if I... I as if I'd planned this diabolically, but actually, it's the notes from which the poem is written. Exactly, and I do, yeah, and I do the same thing. You don't, you don't put the notes in a linear way. You put them in. It's, they've got to be in. Yeah, this yeah. I think it's. I think spreading it's out and to connecting show. up and odd little connections. You're looking for those odd connections and things. Yeah, I mean, what I did with one of them was I, I, I tried to show like a time lapse thing, just show the same page mm-hmm. in in twenty shots. I can't remember which poem it is. Anyway, just. 20 screenshots virtually of the page as the lines got added to so you could sort of see how it progressed and I thought I should do the same thing with with a painting as well to see how that goes because with painting I reprime a lot in other words I um, get to a certain point am disgusted and splash paint over the whole thing and start again (laughs) but that allows you that gives you something to scratch back into which Mm. is interesting Mm -hmm. so I've worked with these two painting methods what I call scratch and flow like paint that's flowing oil and water sort of idea and then the dried thing that you can scratch into with pens or knives or you can really attack and take things out on a canvas that's good you can't really do that in a poem I mean you can shout but it's not the same well, I think revision is kind of sometimes like that. And it's interesting, too, that you said Scavenger's season basically is written over 25 years because I think we're always having our not just conversation with other poems and other people in the culture, but we're also having a conversation with our own poetry at times, too. And, and you was said that there was a line that came up from Republic that you were using today in something. It's yeah, this yeah, constant process home. and yeah. backwards and forwards and creating new connections. And I think, yeah, the Daily Kit is a wonderful look at that. It reminds me of something I was listening to a guy called Andy Pizza, who does creative pep talk um, podcast, which is interesting and a little crazy at times. And he talked about the difference between breadcrumbs and bait. Uh-huh. And he said in the old days, the way we was meant to do it was um, when you made something, you're, you're making bait. So you sit alone in a room and you craft it and you make it perfect and you make it fantastic and then you pop it out in the water and all the little fishies come to it uh-huh. whereas he said now it's more about breadcrumbs and that's exactly what you're doing with the daily kit is this constant giving people that are interested in your process and insights into how you're working as well as the as well as the actual product itself. It's not just about product, it's about the whole engagement and process and the conversations around it. So Yeah, actually I think the breadcrumbs are on Facebook now. But and there's Well you've got breadcrumbs chunk- of breadcrumbs, yes. You you something do. chunky you can go to if you if you <laughs> yes. visit the blog. Little tiny weeny crumbs and then you've got the bigger breadcrumbs, but it's that generosity of not just giving out the final product but giving out your process as well along the way and inviting people into it which is a whole different way of being a poet, really. Lots of convict toil, Australian as General Motors, by paddock rust now gone, gone to a better place, with stock whip, blanket and a cobra, drunk so bloody much, don't know how we got home, maybe didn't, eat my dust, hit the road, weep for Holden, a sacred trust. Weep for Holden. Um, yes, because we're actually conducting this interview two days after, or the day after. The day after, yeah. The day after it was announced that um, Holden is no more, and both of us, the first car I drove in as a little baby was a um, FJ Holden. But you wouldn't have to be a genius to think that once they'd stopped making them in this country, <laughs> that it was going to. Die. Uh, anyway. um, to go back to our ranting before. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, no, but to go back to the whole thing about coal, the subsidies to coal to keep the coal industry going, yeah. and yet they couldn't give subsidies to the car industry, whereas the car industry, if you've got your own car industry, then you can bring in electric cars and you can design for the country and all that kind of stuff. Ah, no, but no, no. no. There is now a beautiful opportunity to start an electric car industry. I mean, it's a totally different thing. We start from scratch. Oh, okay. And this is what, Good. This, of course, this is what Australia should be doing. Okay, so Holden bites the dust and... Holden bites the dust. General Motors, a multinational in Australia. They were all multinationals. Has there been an Australian car since the war, actually? Well, apparently Adam Bant's father designed the ute. 
Well, oh, I thought it was invented in Geelong in the 1920s. That famous song, Henry Ford. Henry got a letter from a farmer in Geelong saying the sheep don't fit where the family belong. They built the ute. It could be one I of those apologize. things like who 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 taught Ron Barassi how to kick a football. A lot of people might claim to have invented the ute, but I just read that the other day, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, nineteen 1920s, I think. Uh. And and I know that with a Model T, you could actually attach a plough to the back of it. I, I had some magazine that showed instructions for how your plough could be attached. Anyway, we digress again. We are digressing, which is what poetry is. It's just a constantly digressing into things. And I'm going to interrupt us here to say that the ute was indeed designed by a family member of Adam Bant, the leader of the Greens Party, and it was designed in Geelong in the 1930s in the Ford factory in response to a letter from a farmer. So we were both almost right. So do you want to talk a little bit about your next project? Uh, ataraxia, okay. Ataraxia. So at- ataraxia is the um, idea of kind of tranquility that a number of Greek philosophies of that generation, let's say, after Aristotle aspired to, but particularly in the philosophy of Epicurus. Plato's school was called the Academy, and Epicurus' school, also on the outskirts of Athens, was called the Garden. And the people who went there actually ate out of you know they tended the garden and that's what fed them which is which is something i can't quite claim to be doing although i love my garden i'm certainly glad there's a supermarket to go to but it's basically i suppose the, the idea about being in the here and now and making this constant effort to understand where you are and to be at peace with that and to promote particularly the value of friendship and, and, and so community, which I think is, to me, what poetry is, is all about. It's about community and bettering the world through friendship, which is counter to lots of things in the way our societies, well, in the Trump and Morrison age, you know, where greed yes. seems to rule everything and where truth is... And they um, are profoundly anti-community times in every way yeah Yeah, yeah. so so i I think i'm very interested in the way creative effort of every kind connects with community enables community and is enabled by community Mm -hmm. and i think it's it's through creative effort we're going to turn the world from fossil fuels in something much better than that and i'll just give you this analogy think about how cigarette advertising was stopped in australia I've just been in Germany working at the youth library in Munich for a chunk of last year, and they still have billboard advertising for cigarettes in Germany, and they have a lot more people smoking there, and cigarettes are a lot cheaper there. Mm. And how has it stopped in Australia? Largely through the creative effort of an organisation called Bugger Up, billboard utilising graffitists against unhealthy promotions, which a lot of people might not remember, but into the 70s and 80s, they made cigarette advertising a joke. They did, and it was a completely illegal guerrilla thing. In the middle of the night, they'd climb up and change huge, expensive billboard advertising into something that made, yeah, as you say, made smoking ridiculous. And I think, you know, all power to Extinction Rebellion and and Mm. the Greens and the parts of the Labor Party that are trying to get rid of coal and have a greener future. You know, there's, there's lots of great people doing lots of great things and there's lots of poets and artists doing great things along these lines. But one of the most important weapons we have is humor and ridicule and satire. And those things are really important. And I'm just waiting to see I know there has been a bit of guerrilla action with those people who are putting up ads in the bus shelters and things. I can't remember who the person was who's doing that, but that's fantastic. And we need more of that, yeah. Very creative in the theatre and the disco flash mobs that they've had recently in the inner city. I kind of figure that, you know, when people think, oh, we can't change. I think if if you can train a culture to pick up dog poo, yeah, absolutely. And take it home. <laughs> that, that's it. I, mean, I think th- you can do anything. You know? think, think about that. taking the counter message where people expect the unremarkable message, the same old story to be, you know, taking 
the news story there to, to confront people where they mm. don't expect to be confronted and make them laugh and make them see how ridiculous it is that we are digging up coal in this day and age and pouring more crap into the atmosphere when the house is on fire. I mean, yeah. 2,000 people's houses on fire, gone, literally, the last two months. I mean, wake up. If this well, doesn't not wake to mention people the, up, what will? All the houses of the wildlife that has gone up the smoke. And yet these right-wing forces who deride the idea of being woke, being woke is a wonderful thing. This is Yay. what we need to work on. Let's 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 all be let's woke. Embrace being woke. Mm. Okay, I'm going to get you to read from the Daily Kit, oh, okay. a poem that I think you just wrote a day or two ago, Eternal Lines. Oh, okay. So this is a more philosophical piece that's... Um, it's towards a collection of notes about the problem of time, which is in turn for another manuscript I'm working on for a book called God's Bother, which the idea of it's basically a um, collection of ideas that would bother God or God. Oh, great. Um, anyway, so eternal line. So th these are very drafty notes. More and more gone to it as if had helped themselves now can't be helped it's how times undiscovered pick up speed take thunder hear the blooms you think to draw them but retreat all on country there a tonal pulse to which i call storms of cloud or simply dark souls have been sold for more less in odd cases cough and it's over take ship times unattended like a dream and come to me angels will so tidings born some days deep in my words i have missed it gone without i think there are numbers we guess take rain a measured thing world at a time and pipe it from the tank call kingdom if you must pointed healing towards all wounds a muttering of peace it has a signature if rarely read how lightning struck me gone And then the second part of that was, it has come. For instance, so much lost tonight. Speak under itch and influence, the river run without the fish. Consider a distance till Christmas. All its implements are torture. Comes as a singularity where words went. I am too, and brief though fraught, a sea of bobs and bits. There is a shutter capture click. None keep up with me. You think you've filled a page with it, but light still stutters through. Things sung towards, not hit. We think we're pissing out of the tent, but the truth still is. Calligraphates and likewise furies, harpies, goblins of the hob, in lapidary letters, please tell me what remains. Some will say, mere technique. Think always a way around. It's made from the career. Little bird told me so. Thank you very much, Kit Callan, for your time. And Thank we you, can Beth. continue the conversation at the Daily Kit. We will. And so can our listeners, Climactic people, get in there and check it out. So the Daily Kit is the dailykitkellan.blogspot.com. And you can also find more about Kit and his books and his paintings at kitkellen.com. That's K-I-T-K-E-L-E-N.com. And we'll put all that in the show notes and a few other things. And thank you again. And thank you for listening. You're on Climactic. Thanks, Beth. It's, it's been a pleasure. And go make some art. And a cup of tea, I think. And a cup of tea at the same time. <laughs> uh -huh.
Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.